sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about some deeper questions surrounding the uh, fascist assault on the Capitol on uh, January 6th as the hearings continue around that. Also going to be uh, discussing a new report that pushes back on the narrative of China's so-called debt trap diplomacy on the African continent. And it's Friday, which means we're having our weekly segment, the Red Spin Report. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, yes, the third hearing in the January 6th investigation aired yesterday afternoon. And I can't say that it was as revelatory as the first or even the second was. I know I shouldn't be watching these things expecting excitement like I would watch an action movie. But look, I have to have some payoff for doing my journalistic duty here. It should come as absolutely no surprise that Trump was told repeatedly that Mike Pence could not, in fact, just overturn the election results. He could not just send the ballots back to the states to adjudicate. He could not just decide that the electors were invalid. Didn't matter to Trump. He wanted it done anyway. And of course, Pence didn't go along with it. And here we are. But a few things did jump out to me as absolutely absurd. First, the fact that so many of the rioters parroted Trump's lies about what Pence could do to overturn the election was just bizarre. Not so much because they believed Trump's lies. I mean, that's bad enough. But aren't these the people who love themselves some constitution so much? How do they not know, those who revere the sanctity and the holiness of the God-inspired constitution, the Declaration of Freedom and National Supremacy, written by the very spirit of the gun-toting Republican European Jesus, that nowhere in that document does it say that the vice president has the power or authority to do what Trump wanted Pence to do? Those folks were out there talking about defending the Constitution by committing crimes so that the Constitution could be violated. And now you understand why people get the Bible wrong. They worship it, but they don't actually read it. So they believe a whole bunch of ridiculous stuff that's just not in there in the Constitution and the Bible, I mean. These folks were so enraged that Pence didn't go along with Trump's scheme to literally violate the Constitution that they almost succeeded in getting to Mike Pence to drag him out onto the Capitol lawn, which I do not doubt they would have done. The violent mob was within 40 feet of Mike Pence, literally just missing him as he and the rest of Congress was whisked away as the rioters breached the crypt in the Capitol building and began searching the halls, calling for Pence's head. Willing to hang that man and probably anyone else they could find to violate the Constitution that they swore they were upholding and defending. And then the other absurdity was the testimony from former Pence attorney Greg Jacob, who said during the hearing that he couldn't wait to get to heaven so he could tell the framers of the Constitution, thank you for writing such a beautiful and eloquent statement in Section 4 of the 25th Amendment to the Constitution. 
Now, just so you know, Section 4 of the 25th Amendment, which has never been used, provides procedures to transfer presidential powers and duties from the president to the vice president when a president is unable or unwilling to recognize his or her inability to carry out their duties as president. It doesn't say anything about the vice president having authority to invalidate electors or send election results back to the states, which is, again, what Trump and his wacko attorney John Eastman, who pled the fifth over a hundred times in his deposition, apparently wanted Pence to do. But that's not where the absurdity lies for me. How does this guy Jacob believe that those men who wrote the Constitution, most of whom were slave owners, are in heaven? How? Now, I don't know this Jacob person, and I can't comment on where his eternal spirit will end up. But the idea that the people who wrote all men are created equal while hypocritically owning human beings that they obviously did not consider equal and also did not extend that equality to women or non-land owning farm owners and the poor. What logic follows that those people will end up in heaven? This is the absurd and twisted thinking at the foundation of the mythology of this country, where people who did horrible things to other human beings are somehow considered heroes and practically saints because they got together with their rich landowning friends and collaborated on how to set up a society with the veneer of equality and democracy, with the words freedom and equal and democracy written on a piece of paper that everyone is supposed to worship, but it's really a way for the rich and powerful like them to stay that way. They're somehow absolved of their crimes against humanity because they quote unquote founded America. Jacobs may think he'll see those men in heaven, but if there is such a place and if God is just, then I think Jacobs will be surprised to see that heaven is full of the abased and broken bodies of those this country was stolen from and built on top of, because I am convinced that it is the poor and oppressed who will see heaven and only them because of the hell on earth that the rich have created. And that actually is in the book, by the way. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Jeremy Kuzmarov, managing editor of Covert Action magazine and author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including The Russians Are Coming, again with John Marciano, and Obama's Unending Wars. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Absolutely. And Jeremy, here recently, we've seen uh, the top leaders of the far right group, the Proud Boys, charged with seditious conspiracy for their role in the January 6th storming of the U.S. Capitol. Now, here on on By Any Means Necessary, we've said from the beginning that uh, both the leaders of these far right groups and Donald Trump himself should have actually been charged with uh, a seditious conspiracy. I mean, you had a sitting president basically 
ordering a mob of people to storm the Capitol while uh, uh, they were basically uh, confirming and validating the results of the election that saw Joe Biden emerge as winner. And even before we get too deep into this, I just wanted to read the uh, actual definition of seditious conspiracy and just what it means. And I'm reading this from the Legal Information Institute of Cornell Law School. And it says, quote, if two or more persons in any state or territory or in any place subject to the jurisdiction of the United States conspire to overthrow, put down or to destroy by force the government of the United States or to levy war against them or to oppose by force the authority thereof or by force to prevent, hinder or delay the execution of any law of the United States or by force to seize, take, or possess any property of the United States contrary to the authority thereof, they shall each be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. And I feel like that pretty neatly defines precisely what Trump and company did on that day. But uh, even with uh, the hearings and some of the revelations uh, in mainstream media, I feel like there's still some dynamics and deeper questions about January 6th that, that I think would import, would be important to getting a fuller fuller picture of not only what happened that day, but who was, you know, really behind it and really instigating things. And you recently published a piece about this, Jeremy, for Covert uh, Action Magazine, entitled Various Alleged Instigators of Capital Riot, Finally Indicted for Sedition, But Questions Remains About Government Infiltration and Incitement. And so uh, from that scope, I'm just wondering how you're sort of analyzing uh, uh, this uh, uh, these recent charges. Well, uh, I mean, I, I agree with your assessment. I, I think there are some uh, unanswered questions uh, that hopefully the congressional, you know, the January 6th committee would take up, although they, you know, may have their own agenda of, uh, you know, uh, Donald Trump and, you know, trying to malign Trump. So they may not go into some of these gray areas uh, because, you know, the, the, the questions include the mysterious figure of Ray Epps, who's this, uh, and, and he was mentioned by Carolyn Edwards in her testimony last week, this uh, Capitol Police officer who's badly beaten. She referred to the Arizona group that is involved in pushing the barricade. You know, uh, when the riot started at, I think it was around 12.50 p.m., that was kind of the key moment when there was a guy named Ryan Samso who actually has a criminal background who pushed the barricade and then the mob, you know, beat up Edwards and then, you know, stormed into the Capitol building. And there's video that captures this guy, Ray Epps, a very tall man wearing military fatigues, whispering something in Samsel's ear uh, right before he breaches the, the barricade, along with one other guy. Uh, I think his name is Jason Biggs, who's a member of the, uh, uh, the Proud Boys, I believe. He, he was indicted, but Epps was never indicted. Well, he was. He was placed on the FBI Most Wanted list, but then he was mysteriously taken off that list. And earlier, he had given some incendiary speeches, including the night before, or even said, told people, go in the Capitol. And the crowd was had been chanting, Fed, Fed, Fed. They thought he was a federal agent. He has a background in Marine. And, you know, people are very suspicious because he was put on the FBI most wanted list and then taken off. And, you know, the question is why, because they're indicting uh, many other people. And he seems to have played a key role in seeing the riot. You know, people have been indicted, like Enrico Tarrio, the Proud Boy leader, wasn't even, you know, there on January 6th, and he was indicted. But Epps was clearly there, and again, appears to be a very key figure, and yet there's no indictment. So there's a question mark right there uh, that, that begs for more investigation. 
And, you know, a few Republicans uh, tried to question some officials about it, but they got no response. So I hope they would investigate this. And there's some other anomalies I point out in my article, <laughs> including the delayed law enforcement response <laughs> and failed law enforcement response. When we know that there were FBI informants, that was reported in the New York Times, that there were FBI informants within the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and other groups that were stirring things up on, on January 6th. And, and it was basically telegraphed on social media. It was known that there was a riot going to happen, and this was a dangerous situation. Yet why was there such a delayed law enforcement response? Uh, even as events proceeded, they were very slow uh, in calling in the National Guard and reinforcements. So things were much worse than they, could have, than they ought to have been because of that. So that needs to be further investigated, as well as other anomalies, including some strange deaths. We still don't know exactly how this Capitol Police officer died. Brian Sicknick, who was claimed to have died of a stroke, but he was a 42-year-old man generally in good health before that. And there was a woman named Boylan who died allegedly of a drug overdose, but there's a picture of her uh, uh, walking. She looked very healthy before the riot, so it would be an odd place to... Uh, uh, apparently, she died of methamphetamines, but uh, you know, how does somebody shoot up in the middle of this riot and overdose seems a bit odd or take, take meth? And then there's the issue of the beating of Ryan. This guy, Samson, who pushed over the barricade, was savagely beaten in prison while his hands were zip-tied by guards. And that obviously raises suspicion that maybe this was done to silence him, you know, so he wouldn't speak out about his connection with Epps and if there was some kind of FBI you know, infiltration or, or provocateurs who were provoking this thing. And there may have been an underlying political agenda at play, you know, to, to create a, a horrible situation that would lend legitimacy to, you know, more funding for the FBI, more draconian legislation along the line of the Patriot Act that curtail American civil liberties. That could be a motive if the FBI was, uh, you know, uh, stirring this up as much as Trump. Yeah, you know, Jeremy, what you just uh, mentioned about the failed response of law enforcement does raise questions about, uh, you know, what people, I guess, would call the deep state and whether they tried to capitalize on, you know, the deeply politically uh, polarized atmosphere and, you know, the growth of uh, right wing extremism, which, you know, is just right on the precipice of fascism. What do you make of the fact that this hearing, these hearings don't seem to be focused on that aspect of January 6th and how it happened and why it happened, that that, that there seems to be, and, and I think they did announce on the very first day, that there would not be uh, a focus on uh, the failed law enforcement response in these hearings to how January 6th happened and why law enforcement didn't respond the way they normally would if other folks were protesting. In, in in the most uh, orderly and and civil manner. Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent question, and you know it gets at I think a broader problem is that the Congress is really unwilling to challenge this era the power of the executive branch and the power of the intelligence agencies or FBI, which have you know grown so so big, you know the past and so powerful that nobody will challenge them. You know, in a past era we had a church committee investigation exposing our CIA abuses in the 1970s, but we've never had anything uh, since. And so, you know, I think if you start to investigate this stuff, yeah, it opens up a real can of worms about about corruption, 
about you know intelligence agencies that that may have uh, been trying to subvert uh, democracy or operating in a, in a lawful way. And then yeah, with the law enforcement, yeah, exactly. We don't know what went on behind the scenes. Uh, I mean, maybe there were some in law enforcement, you know, in the high levels uh, of power who are sympathetic to the pro-Trump uh, movement, but uh, just as easily it could be that, yeah, they wanted to allow the right to go forward to kind of create this climate of crisis that would, uh, you know, put the public on edge and allow for passage of more draconian legislation along the lines of the Patriot Act. So we don't know, but they're, they're not going to investigate it because I think they're afraid to uh, challenge in any way or expose uh, these intelligence agencies or, or executive branch authorities who may be corrupt or trying to manipulate political developments in their own interests. And I think it's it's a weakness of Congress. You know, the U.S. system of government was set up as three branches of countervailing powers. And when the executive becomes too strong and Congress is uh, too weak or too cowardly to uh, try and investigate or rein in the executive branch authorities, then democracy has been compromised. And unfortunately, I think that's what we see. Yeah. And you know, what's funny, um, the the far right elements in the United States, you know, the, the, the Trumpists and things like that, they really harp on this possible involvement or intervention of these federal agencies and really exaggerated to basically make it seem like that was actually what the uh, was the instigating force of uh, the January 6th attack on uh, attack on the Capitol. Didn't have anything to do with Trump, didn't have anything to do with far right groups. It was all uh, just these, you know, Fed infiltrators and things like that, which I think think, as we've been discussing, basically skews uh, the reality of what we know. But what it almost feels like, you know, with some of these questions, uh, Jeremy, and, you know, in some cases at this point, it can be hard to know certain things for sure. But, you know, one could almost get the feeling that this government and some of these agencies may very well be trying to cover their own hide and their own uh, uh, involvement uh, sort of in this. Yeah, you know what I mean? And uh, I think that's why such a, a deep, a deeper probe is really needed. And I don't doubt that some things will um, come out of this, uh, 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 the whole hearing situation. But I'm also wondering what you make of the, the the mainstream coverage of the whole January 6th situation from platforms like the New York Times and other outlets like this that have been touching on it as well. Good question. Yeah. yeah. And first, I should add another thing that, that should be investigated, the pipe bombs, you know, the night before, if there right. was any connection. Uh, to January 6th. As far as the media, well, I, I think they have the same limitations on Congress. I mean, the, the media has become extremely polarized. Many media, like New York Times, are you know kind of support the, the you know Biden wing of the Democratic Party and are extremely hostile to Trump in some ways for good reason. But in this coverage, you know, it, it leads to the focus being almost exclusively on Trump, just like the January 6th committee. And the January 6th committee is presented uncritically as kind of a, you know, courageous investigation to expose uh, Trump's role in this, which I think, I mean, there is legitimacy to exposing Trump's role. And as you point out, he did play a key role uh, in stirring this up. But there's all these underlying issues that they don't want to address uh, and they're not probing into. And the Times had yeah, particularly biased uh, coverage, I think, because they uh, they did have an article about Epps, and they mentioned that, well, Epps had called a tip line, and it's not even verified. There are three people who allegedly heard a recording of this call, three unnamed people. So we can't <laughs> confirm this, 
But allegedly, uh, Epps had called an FBI tip line and said that he was trying to calm Samsel down and even possibly restrain him. But then if you watch that video, it shows no sign of him trying to restrain uh, Samsel when he pushed down the barricade or just before. And actually, in a, a shot, you actually see Epps pushing some people toward the Capitol once the barricade is breached. So the time make it seem like he was he was actually you know somebody who was trying to avert the riot when the video makes it look very clear and I, and I show it to my you know 13 year old daughter who's innocent what she saw and she saw very clearly that Epps was you know a, a key person instigating this riot and even pushing rioters toward the the capital so uh, after the barricade was breached so i think there's a you know the the times is kind of trying to underplay Epps and he seems to be a key figure. You know, if there is some kind of FBI manipulation, he would be a key figure in that. And the time is trying to, you know, you could argue even you know, cover up what might be going on here. So on the other hand, they have done some good reporting, like with regard to FBI informants. So I would urge, you know, people to read the time because they do some good reporting, but read it a bit skeptically because they're not always reporting the full truth and they may be scooping a little bit to support their own agenda, which is kind of an anti-Trump agenda. But at the same time, yeah, they've always been very soft toward the intelligence agencies, especially in recent decades, toward, you know, the, the power structure uh, and so-called deep state. They've never really uh, challenged that in any way, just like Congress. And that's what we see in most of the media who's not really addressing it. The, the only media that's kind of covering the Ray Epps story, that right-wing media, they may have their own agenda, yet yeah, they want to exonerate Trump. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Jeremy, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the myth of Chinese debt trap diplomacy on the African continent. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Amadeus New, a Zambia-based researcher on China-Africa relations and a member of the Dong Sheng Collective. Amadeus, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. And Amadeus, uh, one of the most persistent narratives that uh, we see in geopolitics today, I think particularly in the West and the United States, is this issue of supposed uh, a debt trap diplomacy um, uh, basically being imposed on the African continent by China. Um, of course, China uh, deeply engaged with the African continent through its Belt and Road Initiative and uh, uh, things like this. And this is a relationship that is uh, not looked upon well by the United States in the West that uh, sees uh, the peaceful rise of China as a threat, frankly, to uh, U.S. world hegemony. And uh, recently, uh, Columbia and Oxford universities uh, released a report basically refuting this narrative entitled Politics by Default, China and the Global Governance of African Debt. And it says, in part, quote, the ID 
idea that Chinese debt traps jeopardize the entire continent is hyperbolic. And now, of course, you know, um, this is not to suggest, nor does the report that, you know, it's all uh, uh, peaches and cream or that everything is perfect in terms of these relations. Certainly, these kinds of uh, uh, international relationships sort of always have uh, uh, their issues. But I think the fundamental point is that uh, uh, this this notion that China is just sort of saddling the African continent with debt is uh, uh, simply not the case. And so I was hoping we could begin, Amadeus, if you could sort of, first of all, kind of define what what people mean when they say debt trap diplomacy and how that relates to this recent report. Thank you, Sean. Indeed, let's uh, start by defining what uh, is meant by debt trap diplomacy. So debt trap diplomacy um, is defined as extending loans to countries and taking control of assets if the debtor doesn't uh, pay the loan back. So if there is a default on repayment, the idea of debt trap diplomacy is that um, some bad actors offer countries in the global south, specifically in Africa, loans for projects that they know will fail. And when this African country then allegedly fails to repay the loan, that asset is seized. That asset or some sort of other collateral hypothetical asset that has been put up as collateral will be seized and taken away from that state. So this has been something that's been prevalent in the Western media. Um, Basically, since 2018, it really, really, really started uh, being played up and it hasn't gone away, though it has been extensively debunked by Western academics, researchers and media themselves. Yeah, and it is some of that research that reveals that even though China is the continent's biggest bilateral creditor, most of the debt on the continent of Africa is actually held by private Western entities. So can you give us more information about what this research reveals and who are the debtors uh, that uh, so many uh, countries on the continent are uh, in hock to? Most definitely. So the study says or reports that only 8% of Africa's or sub-Saharan Africa's total public debt of 945 billion US dollars, that's 945 billion, only 8% of that or 78 billion US dollars is actually owned by Chinese entities in general, be they state-owned, private, whatever, the Chinese only own 8% of Africa's total public debt. Now, when we break that down, that actually works out as follows. So when we're looking at African debt, out of that 945 billion, about half of that is domestically issued, meaning this is raised in local um, uh, financial markets through local financial institutions like banks, etc. And the other half is owned by external actors, such as China, um, the IMF, the World Bank, whoever. So the breakdown is that for the external debt, which is 427 billion out of 945 billion US dollars, one third of it is owned by uh, bilateral official partners. So this is government to government lending. One third of it is owned by international financial institutions like the World Bank, for example. And a third of it is euro bonds. Out of this figure, 
when we look at this 427 billion, only 18% of Africa's externally owned debt in this case is owned by China. So there's a huge discrepancy between the narrative of a debt trap and what China actually owns in terms of African debt. Yeah, and I think it's noteworthy, Amadeus, that this report is coming from uh, uh, Columbia and Oxford universities. I mean, to say the very least, these are not uh, radical anti-imperialist institutions, right? These are elite uh, <laughs> educational institutions who, in my opinion, cannot reasonably be accused uh, of being, you know, uh, apologists of the, the Chinese Communist Party or even of uh, Chinese President uh, Xi Jinping. And, you know, on another sort Sort of level, it's hard not to feel a sense of this kind of racist uh, imperial paternalism with the way that the U.S. orients itself to the African continent in general, but certainly as it pertains to uh, Africa's relationship with China, with the U.S. basically taking this uh, a finger wagging um, sort of position, sort of uh, a posturing as the great white father that is warning its its little black children on the continent, you know, not to mess with, you know, the, the, the sneaky Chinese. I mean, this is the messaging that we get, at least in the United States and uh, uh, the West. I mean, it, you know, it, it's brought about almost like a new uh, yellow peril sort of reality, all uh, out of an attempt to try to uh, slow uh, uh, China's global rise through through these different kinds of partnerships that at this point doesn't really seem to be working. And so it seems, Amadeus, that there is still like this, this, this deep colonial sentiment buried in uh, uh, the consciousness and the psyche of uh, uh, the West, uh, while of course, not trying to diminish the the, the the obvious role of the interest of capital in this, but I actually think those things are intertwined. When you talk about the interest of capital and the, the inherent uh, racism and white supremacy in uh, imperialism that, that motivates these kinds of narratives. There's definitely a lot of patronizing coverage, framing, and language when it comes to discussions around this alleged, totally false idea of a debt trap diplomacy in Africa. We often see this in the media, that um, the media uh, fails to provide context, uh, fails to provide diverse sources and diverse thinking on these issues. And often these conversations are had without anybody from Africa or the African diaspora even being involved in this conversation. I think what's also important to keep in mind is that, look, if the U.S. and if the Europeans want to invest in infrastructure in Africa, they are welcome. Uh, I'm just going to quote something from the African uh, Development Bank. So according to the African Development Bank, Africa needs about 130 to 150 billion U.S. dollars per annum over the next couple of years to meet its infrastructure needs. If the global north is ready and willing to invest in this infrastructure. Hey, we need all the help we can get. You know, but the idea that we as Africans don't have agency, that our leaders, who I have many issues with, and we can talk about that maybe on another day, but um, that our leaders are somehow not intelligent and skilled enough to negotiate, to enter contracts, to understand what is in their and our 
best interest is rather mind-boggling. And um, I, I think if anybody talked that way about the global north, people in the global north would be very, very, very offended. And I, it also misses the point. And the point is that China is one of the few bilateral uh, partners that is willing to invest in major non-mining related infrastructure in Africa that actually serves the interests and the desires and needs of African people and African states. You know, I, I have a personal testimony about this. I'm uh, from Zambia. I was born here. I was raised here. And um my uh, my father comes from uh, um, a place called Western Province, and uh, between the provincial capital of uh, Mungu and the uh, place where he grew up, Kalabo, there is a, a huge floodplain. We call this the Barotsa uh, floodplain, and there was no road between the provincial capital and this other town. Uh, you had to go there by boat during uh, the rainy season when the plains were flooded. And this is a journey that could take three to five days, depending on whether you were, you know, moving in a canoe or if you had an outboard motor on your little uh, canoe or boat. Um, so this, this was a huge thing for the people living in that area because people needed to come to the provincial capital to get government documents, to seek medical treatment, um, education, or just to travel on and just have a life as a human being. So we've been asking for a road in that area forever, for a very, very long time. And local stories have it that our government has repeatedly asked bilateral partners, engineering firms from uh, the Europe, from North America, from Japan, um, is it possible to build a road through the floodplains? Many of them said it's not possible. Forget about it. Some of them tried, didn't work. Well, guess what? The Chinese opened a 35-kilometer-long bridge uh, or road that involved 26 bridges over this floodplain, and they sponsored it. They gave us an export credit of 244 million US dollars to build this crucial road. I've been on that road with my family. It didn't take us three to five days to get from Mongo to Kalabo. It took less than an hour and a half. So, and that involved us stopping and, you know, being tourists from, from the city, taking pictures and saying, oh, wow, this is so amazing, right? And that road can be used no matter what the time of year. It can be used when it floods. It can be used when it's dry. And it's changing the way people live. So this isn't just about the economic imperative. This is about how real people live and the social good this infrastructure can create for African people. You know, that's it's hard to to argue with that personal testimony. But there are people who will say, look, there are instances of African businessmen or, or, or Chinese businessmen uh, taking advantage of Africans uh, and they'll use like Paul Kagame uh, kicking uh, a Chinese company out of Rwanda just recently as an example. What what? How often is that? Does that kind of thing happen? And and what is the relationship, or what is the feeling among Africans about the Chinese beyond the studies, beyond the news headlines? How do Africans view the Chinese being involved in their country? Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of context here because I think that's important. That's something that's often missing in this discussion. And the question here is: Are 
are these incidences only limited to the Chinese community? So we need to differentiate between three things here. Number one, is it only the Ch- Chinese businessmen or people of Chinese origin uh, in business in Africa who behave badly or who, who do things that come into conflict with the local community and or the government? No. I live in Zambia. There have been um, conflicts between uh, the local population and businessmen from India, from uh, Lebanon, Palestine, um, from Turkey, from Israel, from uh, Germany, South Africa, the United States. So I don't think, um, unfortunately, under capitalism, that bad behavior of uh, certain individuals is limited to a specific ethnic or cultural group, number one. It's very, very important. And thank you for asking this question. Um, How do people feel in Africa? Well, I can't speak on behalf of uh, all 2 billion plus Africans, because I'm just in one tiny little corner of Africa. And I'm very comfortable in my tiny corner in, you know, Southern Africa or Eastern Africa, if you're in the United States, apparently, um, my country's position changes, you know, according to who is talking about it. But um, Many people here, uh, it, it's, it's, it's complicated, right? The issue is that people um, are unable to determine the difference between the Chinese state, the Chinese government, and private actors, private capital from China. So there, there is a very human element of, um, of kind of looking at one example and then generalizing that, right? So I'll, I'll answer it this way, right? Um, generally, uh, in Zambian uh, kind of public discussion, there is um, a somewhat negative perception of Chinese private capital. But it's not described as Chinese private capital, right? It's described as the Chinese, you know, everybody, the whole cultural group, you know, they're like this, they're like that. Why is that? When you ask people, well, why do you feel that way? It says, well, I read something on social media that there was a a Chinese guy who was working in a town and uh, he said something racist. Or there was an incident where there was... um, in a shop, there was a misunderstanding perhaps between um, a shopkeeper and somebody who was coming to buy something there, and that went viral, right? So I said, okay, fair enough. But what you're talking about are individual incidences. And we can we can look at these incidences, some of them definitely. I'm not saying it's all perfect. There are racist incidences involving uh, Chinese and Africans, but there are also racist incidences involving Africans and Chinese. You know, you you can't simplify it that way. You know, when I ask um, a person I had a discussion with, like, okay, you've told me all this. So I want to ask you a question. If a guy from somewhere in Africa goes to China and breaks the local laws or is rude or uncouth to local people or violates local customs, is it fair for the people in China to say that all Africans are like this one person? And when you phrase it that way, you can actually see now people are get thinking and they're like, okay, no, that wouldn't really be fair. I wouldn't want to be judged by the actions of one person. So is it complicated? Yes. Are there challenges? Yes. Um, I'll be the first one to admit that and point this out. I think a huge issue is communication. Africans expect, at least here in Zambia, we expect that uh, people who come to our country are able to communicate to us. And often you have incidences that could have just been resolved if you, both of you, both parties were were able to communicate. I had an incident where I went to a bank and there was a Chinese gentleman behind me. And uh, this was during COVID, well, COVID is still ongoing. Um, They were letting one person in at a time. 
And I was next in line. And this guy comes up behind me and tries to push past me. And I'm like, hey, slow down, buddy. Not this way, right? I'm, I'm very particular about this sort of thing. I'm like, I waited here for half an hour. You can wait a little longer to come in. And, um, you know, the man was really distraught. Uh, he couldn't really speak much English. And, you know, that could have been a conflict right then and there. Fortunately, there was another Chinese gentleman there who then spoke to him and translated. His, he was more fluent in English. And he said, um, he's very sorry. He doesn't want to be rude. Um, he has a family emergency. He needs to travel back to China and he needs to make payment for that in this bank. But unfortunately, they're closing just now and he may not be able to make the flight back due to the COVID restrictions. When that was explained to me, I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. Go ahead. I'm, I'm home. I'm not trying to get home and understand what it's like to be away from family and have that pressure of trying to get back. So some of these things come down to communication and being able to understand each other. And I think there's definitely more that could be done on either side to make sure that we actually do understand each other and look beyond stereotypes and um, assumptions. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Amadeus, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, co-host of the Red Spin Sports Podcast. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean and Jackie. How are y'all doing? Doing well, Nate. Doing well. And, you know, there's huge news uh, coming out of the world of professional wrestling as uh, the board of World Wrestling Entertainment is conducting an investigation into uh, a secret three million dollar settlement that allegedly happened at the hands of uh, CEO Vince McMahon that uh, he agreed to make to a a former employee over an alleged affair. Now, according to reports, and this was uh, uh, first uh, broken by the, the Wall Street Journal, um, that the separation agreement was signed in January. Uh, was basically like an NDA or a non-disclosure agreement type deal where uh, the former employee would n- be legally um, not able to discuss a relationship with Vince McMahon or to make disparaging comments uh, about Vince McMahon. And uh, reportedly an email that was sent to the WWE board members in late March indicates that Vince McMahon hired the 41-year-old former staffer on a $100,000 salary, then giving her a raise of $200,000 after the alleged sexual relationship began. And what's, I think, even more troubling uh, than that is how another allegation is that Vince McMahon basically gave this woman, quote, like a toy to a John Laurinaitis, who has worked both 
in front of the camera and behind the scenes with WWE for some years. Uh, wrestling fans of a different generation may remember John Laurinaitis wrestling under the name of Johnny Ace. And WWE has released a, uh, a statement saying that Vince McMahon will, quote, step back from his uh, uh, role as CEO uh, of WWE as the uh, uh, investigation rolls on. And, you know, I don't know that people necessarily understand, you know, just what sort of the, the position that Vince McMahon is in in terms of professional wrestling. I mean, he's functionally had a monopoly over the entire industry since about 2001 when he bought uh, the Atlanta, Georgia-based World Championship Wrestling. But, I mean, you know, uh, these, you know, of course, again, are allegations, Nate. Um, it, it doesn't, it, this investigation is uh, sort of its own thing. It's, uh, I haven't seen anything that says that there's any uh, sort of uh, allegations coming from the woman herself, but just sort of curious of your top line thoughts about uh, this whole issue and, uh, you know, how do you see it playing out for McMahon, Laurinaitis, and the WWE? Well, I mean, it's tough to say how it's going to play out in terms of, like, you know, whether or not he's ever going to be back in charge of WWE. I mean, it's hard to see that happening now. I mean, his daughter Stephanie is in line to take over um, in the meantime. But the larger thing here, I think, is that this gets this is just not surprising to me. This is kind of like when you see a character, like a, like a Trump-like figure, a larger-than-life figure that uh, plays on their bravado, um, is, you know, you, where does, like, you know, sort of the, the art, of, what do you want to call it that, of uh, the sort of the act, the, the, the Vince McMahon, the public persona, where does that end? And where does life, like, real life begin? You know, where does that end and real life begins? Um, it's a good question because, um, you know, you, you try to, you build up this persona, this larger-than-life image is so much based on um, the idea of, of just you know traditional um, domineering roles and being this this complete you know uh, infallible you know guy who's just always uh, you know you know always the one kind of uh, dictating how situations play themselves out and how they create themselves and and um, you know there's been rumors and like with you know the relation to marriage with Linda McMahon, his wife that. You know, they kind of had an understanding, but it really does. I think it brings up the question of like, does the art imitate life, life imitate art, whatever. And like, what is, who is the real Vince McMahon? And I think we're seeing like masks off a little bit about, well, you know, he's, he's a guy that, that, that thinks he can, you know, get whatever he wants. And people around him are just kind of, um, object, you know, objects or instruments of sort of like the self-actualization of, of what, he sees his destiny being and um that's uh you know being challenged a little bit now and uh the wall street journal coming out with this is a big deal um uh, that you mentioned going back to 2001 with the wcw like uh you know you know buying buyout you know buying that up and consolidating the power of uh, wwe and the branding that goes with that and, and everything um to me this is like i almost like a logical conclusion of the character that is Vince McMahon playing himself out in front of our eyes. Yeah, and, and the fact that this is covered in the Wall Street Journal, I think, is pretty, pretty, pretty huge, uh, considering, you know, why else would would such uh, a noteworthy, as far as the business world is concerned, uh, outlet pay any attention to professional wrestling? Were it not for the 
just the excessive amount of power uh, that McMahon has in consolidating the different uh, uh, wrestling venues and outlets and and controlling, uh, as Sean and I were talking uh, before uh, uh, the, the segment off air, literally controlling the history of wrestling by owning all of the tapes and, uh, you know, all of that historical footage. I mean, McMahon presented this, this you know, larger than life, uh, braggadocious, swaggering, you know, uh, a head man in charge persona in the ring, very often uh, putting himself uh, in the scripts of the matches, uh, being involved in, in the actual uh, wrestling <laughs> a lot of times. And I'd always thought, I think a lot of that is is just really him. I don't think that's really an act. And now we find out uh, through the discovery, I, I suppose, of the investigation into these allegations that uh, in the forms uh, relating to the separation of the woman who was hired as a paralegal in 2019, who is now an ex-employee of WWE, uh, it, it, it's revealed that she signed apparently, I guess, an agreement in January 2022 in her separation from WWE that barred her from not only disclosing her relationship with uh, Vince McMahon, but also barred her from disparaging him like she literally could not say negative things about him, let alone talk about what their relationship was like. So it's this kind of uh, culture of control uh, from the top down that we see and we've seen over and over again in sports in general, where women in particular are, you know, just used as uh, playthings or, you know, for whatever the bosses in charge want them to be used for. And how do they get away with it? They make them sign an agreement, uh, a non-disclosure agreement that says you can't talk about this, this uh, a relationship or anything, but you can't even say anything bad about me, which just entrenches that power, Nate. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this, I mean, the whole non-disclosure agreement culture, it's just, um, it's almost just a standard business practice in the United States um, that if you know, you're involved, there's going to be any kind of a, you know, monetary compensation for the wrongdoing you've experienced, uh, whether it be sexual harassment, sexual assault, just, uh, you know, just honestly in a situation like this where you have, um, you know, very unbalanced sort of power relationship there uh, at, at the office place. And uh, clearly things um, in Vince McMahon seeing, you know, this woman and seeing, you know, the many, I almost said, you know, every woman, you know, the way that they incorporate them into even um, the, the whole production of what WWE is as, uh, you know, as I mean, everyone's a commodity, not just women, but, you know, particularly, you know, women in the sense of like, this is, you know, his, uh, we're talking about his sexual interests and his, uh, the, uh, and his sexual misdeeds or alleged sexual misconduct. Um, it's, it, it went, you know, women are an instrument, um, for the, the realization of that, that, you know, the, 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 the image that he's trying to mass produce and he's trying to, to project out to the world. And it's, uh, you know, I mean, I remember this is the same guy that created the, the original XFL. Mm -hmm. All the bravado of that for one year. We're going to have this insane football league where there's no rules. The whole pretext, remember, was the NFL had gotten too soft, you know, trying to, uh, you know, uh, 
Yeah, he called the NFL the No Fun League. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, well, the NFL, I, I do agree with that for different reasons. I mean, like, you know, yeah, fines sure. and all that stuff. But for his, what he's talking about is he wants just, uh, you know, Roman-like Coliseum gladiator brutality with no sort of rules about helmet-to-helmet contact, nothing to do with any, you know, mitigating the inherent risk that is playing football um, to, to try to lessen that. Um, that was the whole image. Of, that, that was it. And um, that is Vince McMahon, and it's the same thing in the domain of wrestling. And you're right, I think, Jackie, I mean, uh, I was mentioning like this whole act, but it, you're, it's probably not an act. I mean, it's just hard for me to imagine somebody, like, acting like the way he acts, like when he's, you know, all juiced up and wearing a suit and, and, talk, and you, know, you know, announcing or whatever at a, at a wrestling match. That that's, the, that's how he acts probably on a Tuesday. But, you know, this uh, these are the kind of grotesque figures that uh, – a society that's just uh, we're all sort of economic activity and, and motivation is boiled down to, uh, you know, the desire to, to profit and, and to exploit as much as possible. So Vince McMahon is sort of like your, you know, most grotesque um, sort of example, example of that. Yeah, and it's funny, as we're having this conversation, I'm actually looking at a tweet that the official WWE um, account posted about an hour ago saying that Vince McMahon will be appearing on SmackDown tonight um, at 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox. Now, the cynical part of me thinks that they may just be trying to pop a rating and maybe get some good PR around this thing. But, I mean, we'll, we'll have to see. And just for people who may not understand, I mean, the, the Mr. McMahon character that he played on TV is legitimately one of the greatest heel characters, the greatest bad guys in wrestling history because he had the perfect foil in one Stone Cold Steve Austin who had this sort of down-home, uh, uh, roughneck, uh, beer-swilling Texan, frankly, working-class image of a guy who constantly, you know, was able to defy and straight-up beat up his boss, which is something that I think a lot of us would love to do um, in real life. And another thing I was mentioning to Jackie um, off-air is about how, you know, periodically Vince booked himself in these angles where he's in some kind of relationship with some, uh, you know, conventionally attractive woman, whether it's Sable, whether it's Trish Stratus or whoever. I remember one time, uh, you know, he had he literally had Trish Stratus in the ring on all fours barking like a dog. Now, of course, that's a scripted television product. But again, the thing with professional wrestling is how the lines between uh, reality and fiction can often be blurred. So we're definitely going to keep an eye on this and see how it um, uh, is going to play out. I wanted to switch gears here and talk about the issue of Brittany Griner, a WNBA player who is still being detained in Russia, uh, unfortunately caught up in the proxy war between the United States and Russia. And none other than legendary boxer and Pensacola, Florida native Roy Jones Jr. Uh, recently told TMZ Sports that uh, he's working behind the scenes to to, to to want to free Brittany. Now, for folks who may not know, Roy Jones Jr. has been a dual citizen uh, with Russia and the U.S. since about 2015. And, you know, it's... <laughs> If he can pull this off, I mean, that would be pretty incredible, Nate. But I'm just wondering generally uh, how Jones's efforts here are striking you. Yeah, so when it comes to Brittany Griner and uh, the situation with her having been detained really just before the Russian special military operation commenced in, in February this year, uh, it's, you know, for hashish oil. Um, now the issue of Roy Jones Jr. coming into this is a big deal because, uh, you know, he is a full Russian citizen, as Sean said, since 2015. Um, he has immense popularity within Russia, um, a, a society that, that has a major affinity for boxing. 
And, um, and you know, there's a picture of him. If you look at the TMZ sports article with, with you know, Russian President Vladimir Putin. And, um, you know, Roger Jones Jr. talks about having one of his close, uh, you know, aides, um, you know, as being, you know, very connected with, uh, with, 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 with President Putin and with the Kremlin. And, uh, you know, and look, when you look at the, uh, totally inept State Department of, uh, Anthony Blinken and what they're doing in terms of, you know, essentially insisting that, you know, Zelensky or, you know, even if he wants to even, uh, or anyone within Ukraine, uh, the Ukrainian government, like, enter any, any kind of peace negotiations, you know, obviously diplomacy is not what they're doing. So, um, it's really putting Brittany Griner in a terribly, you know, perilous situation because from the Russian perspective, like, you know, we're under siege here, like in terms of, uh, you know, the sanctions regime that's, that's rained down, that's, um, you know, the, the need that all the military hardware pouring into Ukraine from the West, uh, that just keeps happening, keeps continuing. And therefore, they're going to want to get something in return. Um, it's, it's extremely unfortunate for, for Brittany Griner and unfair. Um, but, uh, these are the, the kind of casualties that happen, uh, from, you know, from, from when wars, you know, breaks out. And this is something, again, we, you know, it's not just, didn't just start in February of this year. I mean, this is, uh, you know, been with the banning of the Russian language, banning of opposition parties, uh, the complete, um, you know, control of the Ukrainian state and capture of it by like, you know, U.S. foreign, you know, you know the national security state interest and state department interest. Um, as a way to try to put a check on Russian power. Those are the forces that created the dynamic, that, that created the political dynamics for Brittany Griner to be, you know, held captive for this long now. Um, for Russia to, to, to just free her, unfortunately, without, you know, any kind of, you know, exchange of somebody would, uh, would be something they, you know, they can't really do um, and save face with um, in the midst of, um, the, the ongoing hostilities with the United States and the, and the West, and, you know, especially in Europe. So uh, it's just unfortunate. And I think that the sad, it speaks to where we are diplomatically and how low of a priority diplomacy has become in the United States and why it's important to keep diplomatic channels open and, and to try to like foster good relations. Because when situations like these happen, um, you're able to draw on those relationships to kind of make a deal happen. And honestly, Roy Jones Jr. is probably better positioned as crazy as it sounds to actually do something that could, you know, get, you know, Brittany Griner back home um, much more effectively than anything the State Department uh, in Washington or the people at their, you know, embassies around the world are capable of doing. Definitely. Pretty wild to see Roy Jones Jr. engaging in uh, diplomacy better than almost the whole of the U.S. government. Well, we thank you so much, Nate, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, June 17th, 2022. 
And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. That's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that by calling us at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E, dot digital, and you can also listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday, and we're streaming live right now for your viewing pleasure on Rumble, rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary the chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, at the top of the hour today, some troublesome news as British Home Secretary Priti Patel has signed an extradition order that would send Julian Assange, journalist and WikiLeaks founder, to stand trial in the United States. Um, uh, WikiLeaks published a tweet about this, calling it, quote, <clears throat> a dark day for press freedom, saying that, quote, the decision will be appealed. And I want to read a little bit from a piece just published about this uh, by Joe Loria at Consortium News. It says, quote, the U.S. had appealed a magistrate's court's decision in January last year not to extradite Assange because it would be oppressive to do so based on Assange's health and the dire conditions of U.S. solitary confinement. The high court decided in favor of the U.S. based solely on Washington's conditional diplomatic code assurances that it would treat Assange humanely. So basically they're taking the U.S. government's word that they'll treat uh, this person they've been attacking for years in a humane way. It goes on to say Assange still has legal options left. He can appeal Patel's decision to the high court. He can also launch a cross appeal to the high court. The court could deny both applications for appeal. Though he won in magistrates' courts on health grounds and the conditions of U.S. prisons, the judge in that court ruled on every other point of law in Washington's favor. Yeah, and so, I mean, this is obviously just a very dangerous point to be at, both in terms of the individual case and freedom of Julian Assange, but I think it's also a dangerous place for journalism to be in, in this, uh, uh, at this point, Jackie, because not only... Do we continue to see uh, attacks on journalists like Assange? And uh, we've also certainly throughout the year seen attacks on uh, uh, whistleblowers of, of different sorts. But you take that compounded with, you know, the campaign of censorship and suppression and deplatforming that's being aimed um, at uh, uh, alternative media platforms you know, under the guise of uh, uh, combating so-called Russian disinformation. But as we've been pointing out on the show, this has now begun to uh, impact alternative platforms that 
aren't uh, state media uh, uh, outlets and don't receive any government funding, which I would argue was the point all along, not to combat supposed disinformation, but to basically make sure that people uh, don't have access to any um, perspective or view that bucks the, the, the Washington consensus. And so the fact that this is happening, that an extradition uh, order has been signed to send Julian Assange here to a country that supposedly values a free press and all those sorts of things, I think is not only darkly ironic, but is yet another example of the profound, deep and abiding hypocrisy that in truth is the lifeblood of uh, uh, U.S. imperialism. It is always preaching and professing one thing while doing another. It pretends to uphold these high ideals of freedom of the press, freedom of speech, freedom of protest, and all those sorts of things. But if you have the audacity to tell the truth about the crimes of some of these uh, powerful governments throughout the world, well, then you become a target of uh, 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 attack. And the fact of the matter is, I feel like we haven't seen that much um, pushback on this from uh, a lot of the journalists in the the mainstream media. And I mean, they they don't seem to understand that uh, uh, the implications for what happens to Assange could very well reflect on them. It's not, it is not just a situation where, um, you know, they're just picking on Assange, the individual. This is something that I think could have a serious chilling effect on uh, journalism in the United States uh, in general, and could pave the way for uh, even deeper out and out suppression of uh, uh, dissenting views. But it it makes sense that we don't see that much support for Assange by the people who, you know, should be considered his uh, uh, colleagues or contemporaries in the media space because a lot of people who are called journalists today are not journalists. They're stenographers for the ruling class and for the State Department and for U.S. imperialism in general. The very thing that uh, Assange was seeking to uh, expose and to actually critique. Uh, and, and in reality, what did he do? He told us things that we have a right to know. We had a right to know about, you know, the collateral murder, a tape and all these sorts of things that we know the mainstream media and the U.S. government would likely never tell us or at best tell us, you know, 90 years down the line when everybody's dead and can't be held accountable type of deal. You know what I mean? And so, you know, I'm definitely wondering what you're uh, thinking about it, Jackie, but uh, Assange needs our support right now, just like he's been needing it all this time. And if we're serious about uh, uh, sort of protecting real journalism and protecting uh, the alternative media space, well, then we have to keep a close eye on what's happening here. Yeah, I mean, it, it is it is unfortunate, but it, it it wasn't unexpected because honestly, we, you know, we talked about how Priti Patel and the UK government is is clearly in league uh, with the United States on many things and particularly on uh, punishing Assange for telling the truth about the crimes of the US government. But Priti Patel in particular is a is a uniquely despicable person because I've, I've heard this person described as someone who would unplug your life support to charge her phone. That's how how just repulsive people believe uh, who know her believe that she is. And this is this is the characterization of her coming from people in the UK who have worked with her. So I I think that's that's pretty pretty damning. But you know, the fact is that Ever since independent media has been exposing the current war crimes 
of the U.S. government in the ongoing, never-ending wars that they claimed were all about freedom and democracy. And, and we have been finding out through, through these independent media sources that it, this, these wars have never been about freedom and democracy. And other people around the world have been subjected to horrendous uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity, collateral murder, as you said, um, that there has been an effort by all of the uh, tentacles of the U.S. government to shut all of that down it, because it, it becomes more and more difficult for the state to manufacture consent for what they do. The more we know, the more we question when they do something else. So, you know, certainly I, I think that what we have to do now as as radicals, as independent journalists ourselves who have, you know, platforms outside of, because we certainly, you know, work for a news outlet, what we have to do ourselves is to continue to do that work. We have to not be afraid because this is this is the 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 atmosphere that this kind of action creates uh, among independent journalists. You do question, you know, what you're saying on social media. You you second guess. Should I should I write this in this article this way, you know, it's because I don't want to get attention from someone who is going to report me and take down my platform? You know, should I uh, report this? That we, we cannot go down that road of allowing them to win with imposing this chilling effect. We can't complete uh, that process for them and back down from telling the truth. So, you know, there are hopefully some avenues for Assange to uh, um, uh, uh, submit appeals. There were facts that emerged in the case about the CIA, CIA plot against Assange that was corroborated by U.S. officials that perhaps he can use uh, as a defense for an appeal. Uh, one of the witnesses, the U.S. witnesses on computer charges against Assange, recanted his testimony. And certainly his health has uh, deteriorated. So hopefully those are those are issues that he can appeal on. Um, But I I hold no high hopes for the court uh, in the UK honoring any of those appeals. But in the meantime, we do have to continue to tell the truth, to tell the truth about what's being done to Julian Assange, to remind people of the benefit to society and to the truth that WikiLeaks has provided, and not just in regard to war crimes, exposing the DNC for what it is, which which I think is like the great crime that that uh, uh, Assange committed. He he exposed the DNC for what it is, exposed their little plot and their uh, collusion, really, in elevating Donald Trump to the presidency, um, but. We also have to continue to raise the connected issues of political prisoners mm-hmm. uh, because Assange is a political prisoner in the UK. He will be a political prisoner here in the US if, if he is extradited. And the fact, Sean, that the condition of American prisons, people who are uh, incarcerated in American prisons and political prisoners in particular was an aspect of Assange's case that the UK court just dismissed, but we know is a very uh, pressing issue, should never be dismissed as a part of this case uh, and for why we need to free Assange and all political prisoners, Sean. 
Absolutely. And I mean, you know, what what Assange really did, which is, of course, why he's been punished uh, for all these years, is because he, he really ripped the mask off the ruling class. He ripped the mask off the imperialists. He showed the reality of what U.S. imperialism does uh, uh, abroad and how many in, uh, uh, innocent people literally get caught in the crossfires of U.S. imperialism that we never get told about. All of these wars and conflicts that we're told are important because they're protecting our freedom or because they're, you know, at, you know, uh, pr- pr- protecting democracy or human rights or sovereignty and all those sorts of things, when in reality it's just a, a blood-soaked, uh, blood-soaked campaign to maintain U.S. world hegemony. And that's an unforgivable sin in uh, the eyes of this ruling class. And so for all this time, they've been doing all that they can to try to get uh, uh, Assange back on U.S. soil or try to get him to U.S. soil, I should say. So basically they can, you know, probably maybe have some kangaroo court trial and railroad him uh, into prison which everyone I think sort of understands absolutely is the reality of uh, what we're facing here. So, like I say, a dangerous time, not only for Assange as an individual, but for real journalism. And so we really, I think, have to uh, be on point in terms of not only how we're analyzing this, but but how we're struggling around it as well. Um, shifting gears a little bit, Jackie, uh, perhaps on a somewhat lighter note, uh, rapper Jay-Z. Mm. Uh, bringing Bitcoin to the hood. That's right. <laughs> Jay-Z is opening up a, a Bitcoin academy in his native Marcy housing projects in Brooklyn. And uh, reportedly, this is, you know, being designed as uh, financial literacy courses that uh, are exclusively available to Marcy tenants. And I tell you what, if you ever see Anybody in your neighborhood talking about some financial literacy (laughs) run because that's a hustle. Mm -hmm. And I got to say, it's pretty funny because there's this article in uh, The Guardian that came out today. It was uh, written by a guy named Wilfred Chan. And Chan literally went to the the, the Marcy Housing Projects to ask the residents what they thought about the uh, uh, Bitcoin Academy. And it uh, doesn't seem like they're feeling it. I, I'm going to read some of their responses here. 58-year-old retiree Mara Raspberry said, quote, It's kind of late to be doing that when people are trying to hold on to their dollars and everything is so expensive. People don't want to be investing money knowing that they might have a chance of losing it. Sounds like it makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, Miss Raspberry also noted about how she'd been seeing uh, reports about the crash of bitcoins, and as such, is is kind of wary of it. She said, "Every dime I get, got to excuse me. Every dime I get, got to go to rent, phone, TV, and internet. I don't have money like that to be losing. If I did, I would try to invest in something that's more reliable, like the basketball game last night. <laughs> you know, I'm going to win something from that. Uh, and so Jay Z, in tweeting about it, said, "Quote: The simple goal is to provide people." tools to build independence for themselves and then the communities around them uh, saying that uh, the, the course at the Marcy houses will hopefully be the, the first of many. And uh, one, one woman said, quote, if you want to do something, fix this place up. We have a basketball court with no hoops. Our parks is broken up in here. He should be doing more for his community, not no Bitcoin Academy. Uh, keeping it mad real, a 24-year-old uh, Naisha Figueroa said, 
The only thing I could say he, speaking of Jay-Z, really did for us was the Christmas stuff. Every Christmas, he would come around and he would give out free toys to the kids or like pocketbooks, perfumes, and little MP3 players. That was good. The Bitcoin ain't. <laughs> and, uh, and she, but she noted that those holiday giveaways haven't really happened in a while. She said he stopped coming around and then it was just his mother that was coming around for a long period of time. And now I don't even know if they do it anymore. This is where he rep he's from and all that, but he don't do nothing for us. Ooh. My friends, this is why we got to knock the hustle. Mm. And, and I say this every time we, we talk about Jay-Z, he has his classic song, can't knock the hustle. We need to knock the hustle because I just feel like a Bitcoin Academy in a housing project in, in Brooklyn that has been falling apart for decades and still is, that is just such a perfect distillation of uh, uh, just the lie of, you know, a uh, 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 capitalist excess that I think so many people have to deal with. I mean, this, this ridiculous, I see that to me, it strikes me like a bootstrap kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, I'm going to teach you how to fish. I'm going to teach you about Bitcoin so you can benefit yourself and this community and things like that. And I mean, it's just ridiculous. And you see that some of the people in Mars, I'm like, yo, I mean, it's cool that you want to help. But there are some very straightforward, practical ways that you could help to improve um, uh, uh, what's happening in Marcy Projects. Matter of fact, a person of J.C. stature could, uh, uh, I think, go a long way to address a lot of issues in New York City. I mean, here on By Any Means Necessary, we've, we've um, you know, done interviews with uh, New York-based journalists like Amir Kafaji, who's told us about the serious issues with NY public housing, NYCHA, and all these sorts of things. But we don't see Jay-Z uh, uh, talking about any of that. He's just trying to foist this Bitcoin thing onto people. And as we see, the folks are aware that Bitcoin is like a losing gamble at this point. And that's what the woman's saying. She literally said, I'm better off betting on the basketball game mm-hmm. than on some Bitcoin that I know is circling the drain in terms of its value. And we've been talking about this on the show. That's why we've been seeing all these celebrities, uh, uh, you know, shilling for Bitcoin. Spike Lee, LeBron James, the newly minted billionaire. And they're not the only ones. It's a whole bunch of others. And so, you know, uh, people continue to try to pass this Bitcoin thing off as it can somehow be the saving grace of a poor and, and working class people. But in reality, uh, Jackie, it just feels like, you know, another kind of a neoliberal Band-Aid on a gaping systemic wound. That dude might as well have gone up in that neighborhood and tried to sell those people Mary Kay. I swear. he, he it could, I mean, it's a Watch Ponzi. Watch My grandmama used to sell Avon. Hey, I, I used to sell Mary Kay. They have some quality you, products. Uh, hold on, Jackie. What? You were a Mary Kay lady? I, I I thought I would try to sell Mary Kay because I like their products, but right. I don't like selling stuff to people. So right. <laughs> I was like, once you tell me no, I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> I'm going to go on about Keep it moving. I'm going to keep it moving. But I mean, it's it's a Ponzi, Ponzi scheme. Bitcoin is a Ponzi, Ponzi scheme. Crypto is a Ponzi scheme. It's multi-level marketing with financial currency on, you know, com- on the computer, whatever, man. It's... Clearly, it is not the liberatory uh, currency uh, that is uh, um, uh, disconnected from uh, uh, the banking system and oversight and capitalism that people made it out to be. But that does not mean that capitalists cannot and do not try to make money off of it. Hence, (laughs) Jay-Z, because, first of all, I can't believe that his little academy, if it were worth any any salt, because it's not. 
But let's just say he actually were teaching something that was worth learning. I bet you his little academy won't free. I bet mm. you it's not free. I bet you there's some kind of cost, which is why she, you know, the, the lady said, look, I don't have any extra money to be gambling on on any investment. So that, that there's that part of it. It's like, you know, there is you're asking to get from people who have so little and and you have so much more than all of those people put together in that project. That Several you can times just, over. You can just go in and meet those people's needs in the middle of the night, not announce it, and that they would love you forever. Yeah. You know, and that that's it's really that simple. But instead, you've got to play this hustle because it's the long game, you see, because you, you got to keep making money hand over fist from these same, you know, same group of people getting blood from a, a turnip. Yeah. Then. And, there, okay. But but, you know, then there's the aspect of this kind of financial literacy stuff that people keep peddling. Particularly, particularly to poor people, and it and it it is always based on you know people are poor because they don't understand finances because they're they're not they're not literate mm-hmm. in the world of finance. Broke people understand finance more than you will ever realize because people who have little understand how to stretch what little bit they have to survive. And and this is something there is that disconnect between regular folks and folks like Jay-Z and the financial literacy hustlers. They believe that poor people are stupid. Right. That that is the basis of the whole financial literally literacy argument. Poor people are poor, not only because they are unaware of how finance and capital and the markets and all this kind of stuff works. It's so mystical that only a few people have this knowledge, but they're really poor because they're stupid. Mm-hmm. So we have to come in and educate these people on how to how to be wise in how they spend their money. But if you barely make enough money to pay rent, feed yourself and clothe and ha- uh, and clothe yourself there's no amount of literacy that's going to stretch that little bit that you have to make you anything other than struggling right. but but these people always come with this financial literacy hustle as if they themselves got rich because of financial literacy right they didn't right they get Jay-Z and Beyonce and them folks they got rich because they are talented. Yeah. And they were chosen. Right. That's that's it. That's yeah. really it. <laughs> yeah. J- J- Jay-Z started off as a drug dealer. He didn't take no financial literacy course. And then he got rich uh, off a of rap. And I mean, according to The Guardian, the courses are free. But you're correct, Jackie, in that they're still, you know, having to invest is using the little money that they have. And you're absolutely correct. And this is a big part of my issue with the logic of financial literacy. And I think, fortunately, it seems like it's less popular than maybe it was uh, once upon a time, but it's definitely still a thing about people. But you could have all the financial literacy in the world, whatever that even means. But what good is it if you're just straight up poor? Like, what does that mean? If everything you spend, just like one of the women was talking about, everything that you make goes to your basic survival and your basic needs. If you got all that literacy, then it's like simply no good. You know what I mean? And, you know, this is the same cat 
that that told us to that we got to gentrify our own hood. And I feel like I bring this up every time we talk about Jay-Z, but I think it's just an excellent example of his thinking. And people celebrate it, that they're like, yeah, Jay-Z is right. Don't let the white folks push black people out of the neighborhood. Let's let black people push black folks out. And it, it, it's just like how we see, you know, certain folks. Um, uh, I think I think uh, it was Yandy from Love and Hip Hop had some kind of deal with like, she was flipping houses, but she was making it seem like, uh, you know, she was improving housing for the neighborhood. Like there's always this PR philanthropic uh, face that they uh, uh, put on this stuff to make it seem like they're helping. When in reality, are they, all they are helping is their own pockets and their uh, uh, public image. You know what I mean? And so there's no real substitute for uh, making available freely and abundantly the resources that people need to live to survive. It's not something that can come from a celebrity. It's not something that can come from a billionaire. It is only something that can come from a properly organized and uh, a properly oriented uh, society and system. And without question, that system is not capitalism. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman are chopping it up here on this lovely Friday and uh, shout out to the by any means necessary chat. Manny Nile talking about the, the Bitcoin Academy courses says it is free because they are the product. And I think that that's mm-hmm. true. The people themselves who, who, who are taking these courses are basically what is uh, being consumed here. And not to belabor the point about this, Jackie, but, you know, I think this goes to a broader issue about why some people um, are, are so excited about like the idea of. Uh, a cryptocurrency, not even just Bitcoin, but cryptocurrency in general. And, you know, I think it stems from a fundamental misunderstanding of capitalism itself, because there's this idea that we can that there can somehow be a currency that's like separate from the already established economy that therefore can create some, you know, opportunity or new reality that is like more liberatory and and flexible for people or whatever and what have you. But that's impossible, right? Because (laughs) there's nothing that is uh, exempt under, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, this capitalist system. Matter of fact, we were talking, I think it was just this past Tuesday on our Tech for the People segment about how, um, you know, the the oversight over Bitcoin and things like that and how, you know, basically they're letting the, the, the cryptocurrency industry kind of do oversight on itself, which more than likely uh, will not turn out very well. But what it tells me, Jackie, the, the, this excitement around uh, uh, crypto, because it feels like every so often something comes along that people get excited about. Why? Because it seems like an alternative to the status quo. It seems like an alternative to the established reality. And this is the importance of organizing and public education. 
to help folks see that, yes, we do need an alternative without question. But there is no alternative to be found under this system as currently constructed. There's nothing you can build or invent or invest in that's going to allow you to circumvent the capitalist system itself. That's just quite literally not how it works. It's not how it's designed. It's, it's not really possible. You know what I mean? And so uh, I feel like a fundamental misunderstanding of the capitalist system itself is a, a, a big part of what we're talking about here. But I think, Jackie, what we have to be consistent in terms of when we're talking to people who I think either consciously or subconsciously, particularly given how difficult conditions are right now in so many ways, People either consciously or subconsciously, they know something's wrong. They know things have to change. They know that things have to be different than uh, what they are, but they may not know what it's called. They don't know how it looks and they don't know how to get there. But this is where organizers come in. And so I really, as ever, I just don't think there's any getting around the building of this kind of mass movement of poor working and oppressed people to show the reality, not only of the reality of what we're living under, and how much it can construct us, but also showing the possibility of a new society and a new system and what that could look like. And the beauty of that comes through, not through some utopian fantasy, but through the act of struggling itself. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, and, and, and that's the thing I think that is 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 missing in the in the uh, uh, discussion about things like cryptocurrency or whatever it is, you know, this every and I, and I swear you're right. I think it's like every 10 or 15 years, some new something comes along that's supposed to be this revolutionary thing that the poors can partake in and become rich. And and it's that part. It's the become rich part. It's never really that whatever it is that comes along can uplift an entire community, can can change the landscape of society for everyone at the bottom. It's always that a way that you, if you get in early enough, can get rich off of. And and that's usually not the case uh, because by the time you and I find out about these schemes, no matter what it is, everybody who got in early, they already got in early and they're already making money off of everybody else, which is why cryptocurrency is a Ponzi scheme. But, you know, there is a, an, an element to political education where we're having to de, and I don't like using the word decolonize too much, but we have to 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 de uh, indoctrinate people. It's like we have to deprogram them from capitalist thinking, from this individualism um, in in that that we are supposed to be striving for our individual success in whatever it is. And that the only true liberation, if, if that's what we are individually after, is for the liberation of all of us. And the only way that happens, the only way one of us gets free is if all of us get free. And the only way all of us get free is through scientific socialism. So it's that it's that deconstructing the individualistic capitalist narrative that we're all indoctrinated with trying to chase that bag, chasing the hustle, you know, get doing our side hustles and, you know, working two, three jobs to death while we are not getting rich, um, thinking that we are we are getting the bag breaking that down and explaining we are a part of a community of people, of of a community of communities. We're a part of a, a global community. And the only way you get free is if, if everybody else gets free from that same trick bag. Yep. Yeah, totally. 
And uh, speaking of socialism, not to make too hard a pivot, but uh, another thing I wanted to discuss today is that, um, you know, uh, would-be coup president of Venezuela, Juan Guaido, he's he been out here getting beat up. And he, he's, he's not having a good time. I've seen um, uh, at least two different videos, courtesy of our friends at Casa Chun News, of him being like straight up like attacked by uh, uh, groups of people in Venezuela. And I cannot say that I am sad to see it. And not only is he uh, catching the blues in Venezuela, even his imperial puppet masters uh, uh, seem to be distancing themselves from him more and more. I want to play a recent clip by Nancy Pelosi. I believe this was at some point um, during the uh, Summit of the Americas or some kind of press conference type of situation where she was asked about Wang Guaido. And uh, I must confess, I'm quite tickled by her answer. Let's roll that. Yeah. Migrants, but the person that you recognize as uh, the leader, democratic leader in Venezuela, is not here. What do you think about the absence of Juan Guaido here? By whom? Juan Guaido, the, the interim president of Venezuela that you recognize. Well, I want to talk about who is here. Who is here as the president of the United States and has been said four years ago the president did not attend. Yeah, so <laughs> she said who? Wang Guaido and, and, and Nancy Pelosi act like she didn't know who she was talking about. That's so interesting because she heard that lady. She heard her. She heard that lady and then said, ah, oh, well, you know, I want to talk about who is here <laughs> and then just started rambling about like whatever. But it's actually a great question. If this is the summit of the Americas and you're excluding Cuba, Venezuela and Nicaragua, supposedly for issues of democracy, and you have this cat that y'all swore up and down was the interim president of the country, even though he had not even a shred of legitimacy. And now you're acting like you don't even know who he is and then why he's not invited. And so it's just a pretty sort of obvious thing. And that's not the only one. Um, uh, there was also a moment with uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre, White House press secretary, who we were talking about, and that might have been just yesterday. No, I believe it was the day before. And we were talking to Kim Brown um, and her thing about Don Lemon. And when Don was questioning the, um, I mean, frankly, asking, like, is he like mentally and physically capable right. of being president for another four years? Uh, because he barely seems like he's capable right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people, people were attacking Don Lemon, talking about, oh, these are Republican talking points and things like that. No, I think people are just reacting to like what they're seeing with their own eyes and also the complete lack of, you know, any real achievement or benefit for the masses of, of poor working and oppressed people in this country. And all we're really left with is a, a, a mountain of broken promises. But I want to run that clip of uh, uh, Jean-Pierre as well. Uh, 
uh, environmental concerns in the Amazon. Can you confirm that report? I, I cannot confirm that report. The president is um, is is looking forward to leaving tomorrow uh, to head to the summit. That clearly that we're uh, that we are hosting. Um, I can say this: the, the United States continues to recognize um, Juan Guado as the interim president of Venezuela. That said, while the interim government was uh, was not invited uh, to participate in the main summit, they are welcome to participate in all three stakeholder forums and other events. Yeah, now that one, first of all, Guado, that's who we're recognizing. Uh-huh. You're, you're the White House press secretary and you can't even pronounce your puppet's name correctly. Maybe that was that Martinique accent creeping in. I don't know. Yeah, you know, hey, and... Um, and, you know, what's interesting. Oh, and Ricky Ryan actually pointed out this same thing in the uh, in the Biden Necessary chat. Corinne Jean-Pierre was asked directly about Bolsonaro and went straight to talking about President Biden recognizing Guaido only for Nancy to say whom days later. And that's what I couldn't understand, because as you probably heard that the reporter asking the question, he was asking about Jair Bolsonaro and Brazil and, you know, Bolsonaro questioning the, uh, uh, you know, um, integrity, if you will, of the Brazilian voting machines and process and things like that before the election even happens in a kind of Trump-like uh, way. And for some reason that prompted her to say, we recognize Guado. And it's, you know, but you know, this is what happens, Jackie. This, this is the price that people pay when you make the decision to be a puppet for U.S. imperialism, thinking that you've punched your ticket. And maybe you have good reason to believe that because a lot of people have successfully become a puppet of of a country and have lived well. But uh, that is not what happened to Wang Guaido. And and even the title of calling him an interim president. What interim are we in? Right. The Maduro government has literally been in place and has been operating and been in power this entire time has never uh, been out of power since this the the coup attempt um, uh, uh, really started. Meanwhile, Guaido is only given legitimacy by his support from the U.S. and the West. And they even have the audacity to, uh, you know, at one point anyway, he had a quote-unquote cabinet. You know, you had these uh, ne'er-do-wells like Carlos Vecchio and and people like that. But how can you have a cabinet when you're when you're not running, running the government? government? Right. Right. That's not your cabinet. That's an entourage. Right. And so Carlos Vecchio has to be the political equivalent of like a weed holder in a rap entourage. Basically, the guy who's like his job is just to, to, to hold the just, dope. Just hold the you, you know what I'm saying? Like that. that's about as much good as they were doing. I mean, these people are such clowns. And like I say, that, that there's nothing legitimate about them except from the support that they had um, from these major powers, the United States and the West. But as we know, because we've marked on the show about how that wing of the Venezuelan opposition has completely splintered. And so Guaido really has no uh, uh, support, right? And, you know, as I often describe him, I mean, Juan Guaido, he's a fake, a fraud and a failure. But, you know, it, it, it I think, goes to show what happens when um, U.S. imperialism picks you to be a puppet. And for some reason, they always pick these strikingly unremarkable people. Because I feel like we see a similar thing with uh, Tihanovskaya in uh, Belarus and uh, things like this. And so when it doesn't work out, they just kind of cast you aside. Maybe they'll give you some uh, a token acknowledgement. And even in a moment like this where we see uh, the United States going hat in hand, to Venezuela over the issue of oil and things like that. And, you know, and it, 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 I think shows the reality 
of what happens when the U.S. has these hand-picked uh, uh, people. But then you have a situation in Venezuela where the people that largely supported the, the Maduro government resist in such a way to where, you know, you may have uh, legitimacy by the imperialists, but not to the people who really counts. And therefore, you just look like a complete joke. Exactly. I mean, I, I have been enjoying the Day of the Thousand uh, Chairs or, or the Day of the Flying Chairs. That's what I've been calling it, the Day of the Flying <laughs> Chairs video for like three days now. I've, been, I've watched that thing at least three times over the past, uh, each day for the past three days. And an interesting uh, point that was made by a friend of the show, Ajamu Baraka, was that at least one of those crowds, because there are several videos in different locations— right. At least one of those crowds apparently are a bunch of of, of supporters of the opposition of the of the right wing, right. and they're still throwing chairs at Juan Guaido. Why? Well, because remember, Guaido was complicit in stealing Venezuela's gold, mm-hmm. and he didn't share. Right. He didn't share, y'all. So <laughs> they are angry that okay, fine, you stole the gold from the Maduro government, but we were supposed to get our cut. Right. So so this guy is hated on all sides in Venezuela. And, you know, I, again, am, am not sad to see him set upon by the people um, of, of either end of the political spectrum uh, in Venezuela. I, I wish they would beat him to the point where he gives that gold back. That would be great. Yeah. Um, but I think it is telling that uh, no matter what uh, officials in the U.S. government say, The fact remains, Sean, they had to go to the actual president of Venezuela to beg hat in hand for uh, releasing uh, the the uh, uh, licenses to extract that oil from that and and lifting that one sanction. They didn't they didn't go to Juan Guaido for that. Right. They went to one president, Nicolas Maduro, for that. Can you get something? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So they may they don't they may not uh, admit it publicly, but in their heart of hearts, in their ugly, greedy, capitalist heart of hearts, they know who the president of Venezuela is and they hate it. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm so glad you raised that, Jackie, because that reminds us about the deep corruption in that wing of um, the Venezuelan opposition, because it's true that they benefited from a lot of the money and resources that were stolen from the uh, uh, Venezuelan people by these sanctions and and uh, uh, things like this. And like you say, some of uh, Guaido's former um, uh, uh, cohorts were a little upset that they didn't get their taste and therefore uh, he got hands and chairs put on them and things like that. <laughs> and yo, Shout out to a longtime listener by any means necessary chat. It says Guaido should have disappeared like the Mobile, Alabama leprechaun with his gold. That is a throwback, my friend. That is one of the that is a throwback viral moment. Shout out to Mob Town, uh, just about 45 minutes away from my hometown of Pensacola, Alabama. Uh, And there's actually a whole follow up to that leprechaun store. If you look into it. and Yeah. Somebody actually tracked down. The so-called leprechaun. It was just some short guy in the neighborhood. But we're going off the rails here. We're going to go to another quick break on that note here on By Enemies Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch Steady C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back. 
any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here as we continue. And I see... I see some folks in the in the chat. I don't think uh, they may not be aware of the whole mobile uh, leprechaun thing. I'm going to drop a link uh, that I just grabbed on YouTube for it. When you get a second, give it a look and you'll see uh, the amazingness for what it is. Um, another thing I wanted to touch on here, Jackie, it was this recent piece published in Truthout uh, entitled Medicare for All could have prevented 338,000 COVID deaths in the United States. And I just want to read the the two opening paragraphs from this article that was published by one Mike Ludwig. It says, a universal health care system could have saved more than 338,000 lives in the United States by preventing roughly one in three deaths resulting from the COVID-19 infections through March 2022, according to a new study. A single-payer healthcare system would also have saved the nation an estimated $105.6 billion in healthcare costs associated with COVID treatments and hospitalizations, leading the study's authors to conclude that universal healthcare, often called Medicare for All, is both a moral and financial imperative for policymakers. Published this week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences USA, the study and a companion analysis are a stunning indictment of what their authors describe as a, quote, fragmented and inefficient healthcare system that leaves millions of people uninsured and underinsured every year. Americans spend more money on health care than people living in any other nation, but the U.S. has sustained 16% of COVID's global mortality burden while only representing 4% of the world's population. So this is saying the U.S. only comprises 4%, a small percentage of the global population, but accounts for more than 16% of what's described as COVID's global mortality burden. Over a a million deaths Mm -hmm. in the richest country on earth. And so, I mean, obviously, this just shows how capitalism exacerbated uh, the pandemic. And the system is, in fact, the sickness. The fact that it would have saved lives, resources, and money to uh, uh, give health care for all, uh, I think, says a lot. It's hardly surprising to see that. But then we have to ask, well, why didn't it happen? On the basis of plain logic, you would think that policymakers, the government, the president would say, hmm, you know, we could save a lot of people and a lot of money if we just made health care for all freely available to everyone. Now, mind you, we have someone in the White House right now who was vocal even before he came into office that he did not support health care for all Mm -hmm. and indeed would not even consider it if it were to come across his desk as president, although I don't think we're in any danger of that happening anytime soon, given the politics of the Congress and things like this. But I just laid out what the plain logic would say. The plain logic you think they would be, it would be a no brainer. But we're not talking about plain logic. We're talking about capitalist logic. And so if people have health care for all, that's going to directly impact the super profits of Big Pharma and all these other uh, corporate entities 
that are maximizing profits while a million people are dead and with many more uh, that will be dealing with lifelong consequences of having contracted COVID-19. You know what I'm saying? And it, it, it's just, it, it shows the fundamental inhumanity of capitalism. Because like I always say, these people are fools, but they're not stupid. Mm-hmm. They know very well how beneficial it would be to society as a whole to uh, uh, have health care for all. But they don't care about that because they're not concerned about humanity. They're not concerned about whether people live or die, regardless of what they say. They're not uh, uh, concerned with the health and wellness of the masses uh, of people in this country. They're just interested in making sure that they can continue to line their pockets. And if that means a million people got to die and be saddled with debt and pay more for medical care than anyone else on earth, well, then so be it. Because that's what capitalism does. It shifts the burden onto the masses of poor working and oppressed people while the ruling class, the capitalists, get all of the profit and none of the suffering. You know what I mean? Exactly. And and I'm sitting here thinking back to when uh, uh, John McCain was running against Barack Obama. And they were having the conversation about Medicare for all. Um, and and it wasn't even Medicare for all at the time. It was it was it was you know Obama was pitching his expansion of uh, Medicare based on uh, Romney's plan, which is which is what he eventually did. How we got the piecemeal insufficient uh, Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, which is why we still need Medicare for all. But I remember Sarah Palin, Sean. Talking about how if Obama got his way, there would be death panels. They would implement death panels. They, meeting the Obama government, would implement death panels to decide who lived and who died. And I thought I was really struck by that argument because I kind of thought, isn't that what insurance companies do anyway? That's that's Mm -hmm. what they do. You 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 get you get diagnosed with cancer. Or or any uh, chronic or terminal, a long-term uh, illness. And what, what, what does the insurance adjudicator do with that diagnosis when they get the bill from the hospital? They determine whether they are going to pay for your treatment or not, and that is literally a determination or whether you live or die. And the Obama administration gave the insurance companies that already decide whether we live or die by deciding what they're going to cover and what they're not going to cover carte blanche to write the legislation that was passed into the ACA, that people are like, oh, we have to protect that now. No, we don't. We need to get rid of the ACA. We need Medicare for all. We need nationalized health care. But see, then nobody would die. Well, of course, people would die from natural causes and that kind of thing. But people people would be able to get health care because I know that if the United States had a nationalized health care system and still had the option of uh, uh, additional executive uh, services, as I, as I think it's called in some countries, where you can still buy private insurance. Most Americans, even wealthier ones, will opt for nationalized insurance because they understand how much money it costs to stay healthy right. in this country. They know that. So, I mean, we we live in a system where death panels are the norm. And COVID-19 has made 
I, I don't even I think Kim was uh, Kim Brown was absolutely correct when she called COVID-19 a mass disability event. And I and I had never thought of that before. But I but when you think about all of the people who for for the better part of two years have been very careful, masking, distancing, washing hands, you know, that kind of thing. And for all of that trouble, they still contract COVID. And then some of those people contract long COVID and, and doctors don't know how to treat some of that because it's a new thing. What else is that other than a mass disability event? And then you've got the subvariants. And then you've got this other virus that's coming along. And all the while, we're having to pay for uh, booster shots because they're not subsidized by the government anymore. You know, we 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 have to we have to pay for whatever doctor visits we have to go to for all of this. And and then the pharmaceutical companies are making billions, billions of dollars. Meanwhile, China and Cuba have worked together to develop a vaccine for a pan covid, uh, 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 a pan covid vaccine. That will not be available in the United States because the United States does not want to not make money off of that kind of life saving technology. We live in a death trap in this country. And, I, and that is not an understatement, Sean. Yeah. Speaking of China, um, uh, a much more densely populated country than the United States with over a billion people and only a, over five thousand deaths from uh, uh, the coronavirus vaccine, because from the very beginning, they did what needed to be done to make sure that the thing was contained. And uh, there's a connection to this and this other piece I was looking at uh, in NPR that was published, I think, yesterday. That says that uh, more than 100 million Americans, including 41 percent adults, uh, are dealing with uh, healthcare debt. A hundred million people in the U.S. are dealing with medical debt. Imagine that. Imagine a country to where to do something as basic as get medical care, because that is basic. People get sick. At some point, you are going to need some level of medical care, right? That it, It's a basic human need to be able to have that. But to be able to get that means driving yourself into debt. And you combine that with uh, uh, the horrible way that this uh, uh, pandemic has been mishandled by the capitalist United States. And on top of the current issue of raising prices for things like food and fuel and things like that. I mean, the masses of poor and working people in this country are really feeling that squeeze. And it's always been like that from the very beginning. The The consequences of the contradictions of capitalism as it pertains to coronavirus pandemic has always been sat squarely on the shoulders of poor working and oppressed people because it's been foisted upon them by the capitalist class. As I was just mentioning, this is precisely the point of how the whole system is set up. How can this country proclaim to be the greatest on earth where to be sick can be so expensive? You can go in debt just for trying to stay healthy. We tell the whole world, I should say the U.S. government tells the whole world about its greatness and how it upholds democracy and human rights and all those kinds of things. This is an assault on human rights. When you put these kinds of barriers to things as basic as health care, like clean water, like 
food, like baby formula. All of these things and many more that are uh, 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 consequences of the capitalist system. But yet the world is supposedly told about its greatness. And I think a lot of the world, fortunately, is pretty hip to the fact that that's a lie. But I think, unfortunately, most Americans may still think there's some truth to it. But I think the bloom is coming off the rose. I think the mask slowly but surely is being pulled off of this thing. But as I often like to point out, people may be aware of some of these dynamics, but it's not going to really make sense in terms of what can be done uh, towards a solution until uh, organizers enter the equation and really begin to not only talk with people, but to really bring people together and, and, and really sort of move them towards a concerted effort to really address all these problems. Because if we don't, these things will only get worse. But we're going to leave it there for today here on and this week on By Enemies Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be back next week with an all-new slate of episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.